Uh, but right now I'm, do I'm joined by Dr. Helen Taylor from the Department of Anatomy. Morena to you, Helen. Morena. How are we today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you are more than welcome. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Thirst for Knowledge series. I quite enjoy this series. I've had many in to talk about what they are doing over in Umbrellas. It's just so casual, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. Beer and science. Yeah. Like my two favourite things together. Well, beer is science. Isn't it? Isn't that it? is true, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, don't count your kiwi before they're hatched. Um... Which which really means, hey, look, you've got a bunch of kiwi eggs. Who's to say that kiwi egg, the bird inside, is going to be okay? Yeah, and, and also the idea that we often base our conservation success metrics on numbers. Yes. So we say, right, we've got a lot of that thing, or that population is growing, so we're going to assume it's okay, and we're going to say it's not endangered because it's, it's growing and it's doing really well. And we do this a lot in New Zealand. We talk about the Chatham Island black robin as mm -hmm. a conservation success because yes. there were... Uh, they went down to just one female and a couple of males and now there's a few hundred of them so hooray that's a success but what we don't often consider is what are the underlying genetic issues that might be uh, that those populations might be having yeah. and so my work with kiwi showed that very clearly and certainly in some species uh, those genetic issues can be masked for a wee while and then they can come out and, and cause problems okay so you're sort of talking a, a few generations down down the road yeah yeah a couple appear. of generations especially when you've got a long-lived species like kiwi so some species of kiwi they're living for 30 to 80 years in the wild mm -hmm. and so your first couple of generations might be doing fine and your yeah. population's growing but the subsequent generations are having real issues and you don't see it for a long time uh, because it's going to take a while for those first generations to die off yeah so. yeah because uh, i mean of course genetic diversity is uh it must be pretty important within uh for species to survive um you know, you can you can lead to loss of, say, um, some tumour suppressor genes. Yep, yep. So disease resistance is a big one that we mm -hmm. often talk about, where if your populations become very small, uh, you're going to lose some of the genetic diversity that was there, and some of that will be to do with genes that allow you to adapt to environmental challenges like disease, like changing climate. Mm -hmm. um, so the more genetic diversity you have, the bigger a pool you have to draw from when something yep. changes and that population needs to survive. So say you've got, like, you know, and you mentioned the Chatham Island Tui. I'm gonna use. So I'm gonna black be, Robin. Oh, or you tui? The, you, you want to go the Tui? You said the black Robin. Yeah, I'm <laughs> gonna say the Tui. I'm gonna go the Tui because you know the black Robin. It, it, it's, it's, there's, there's a few more of the, the, the Tui, I believe. Um, but say you know if you're taking one from from outside, you, you've got a localized population that you've established on an island off the coast of the Chatham Islands, like the Snares or something. Yep. Um, and you've you've got some more that you want to release into that area. Um, wh what kind of work would you do um, to you know, would you go and, um, or you've, you, I guess you've got a database of some of the TUI that would already be there, uh, and would you look at the genetic makeup of the ones that you're going to release to see if there's going to be any problems? Yeah, so you would hope that you would have that database, but quite often we don't. Yeah. Um, and there's a real problem here where because genetics isn't prioritised in conservation, often when animals are being handled and moved, we don't take genetic samples as standard, which I would argue that we always should, so just yeah. a feather or a blood sample or something so that mm -hmm. we can go back later and have a look at the DNA of that species. It's not always done. Some species recovery programs do do it now as standard, but not all of them do. So we don't always have the data to look at and say, should we be mixing these two populations? Do we need to bring in more genetic diversity? What do we have? So that's very much what my research focuses on. Yeah. Uh, but it's just one small part of it. And what I would like to see is that become a standard part of conservation management, where we always have that database to go back to and say, okay, what are the risks? Yeah. If we bring uh, these birds in from this separate population, is there going to be an issue in terms of breaking up special adaptive gene complexes or is this the diversity that this population really needs to survive yeah. and we need that data to answer those questions but we don't always have it because mm, it would be you know 
it, it would be good if you could put birds into populations that would be good for that population, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's a really nice example um, with South Island robins up in the Marlborough Sounds. You've got a very inbred population on an island called Motuara mm-hmm. and a very inbred population on an island called Allports. But they're inbred in different ways. So they've both got very low genetic diversity, but it's a different genetic diversity. So and so a colleague of mine, Dr. Jim Brisky at uh, University of Canterbury, switched birds between the populations yeah. and restored not restored but boosted the genetic diversity on each island but by using inbred birds which was a really interesting that's approach that's yeah. great so why aren't we taking these samples is this uh you know uh, do we have government entities that are fixated on numbers as well um no i mean and this isn't specific to new zealand this is kind of a globally acknowledged problem there's a thing called the conservation genetics gap and it's basically it means you've got geneticists working over here doing their genetic stuff that they think is very important and you've got conservation managers doing all their management very important to keep species alive and they're not very good at talking to each other yeah um, and so part of part of my work and part of my research is about how do we bridge that gap and make mm-hmm. sure that there's more of a conversation between those two sides so that managers um, have the idea and, and the understanding that genetics is important and are empowered to say actually in this plan I'm going to go and get genetic samples and we're going to integrate genetics into this plan because we know it's important to do that so mm-hmm. having that conversation and, and making that knowledge available to people is really important and making it available in the way they can understand yeah. because a lot of people think genetics is lots of jargon and big words and stuff and, and difficult concepts and it's actually very very simple but only if you talk about it yeah. in, in a simple way don't think just because the things themselves are very tiny yes. that you're not going to be able <laughs> Understand. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I, I we, we, you just talked about um, bringing the two over and, and putting things into populations to make them stronger, I guess, or genetically stronger, uh, and and that is called uh, genetic drift, maybe speeding up uh, evolution in a way. Uh, well, that's if you've got, you know, you can create that. So. Um, are you, so you'd be looking for traits that help a population grow, and that could be cool yeah, too. yeah. So, so genetic drift is basically a lottery. It's it's chance, and it's what happens when your when your population gets very very small. Some of the different gene variants in that population can drift um, to being the only variant just by chance. And 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 the the smaller your population, the stronger the effect of that drift is is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we bring um, individuals in from another population to top that population up, that's genetic rescue. So we're bringing in a, a separate set of genes and hopefully that's going to boost that diversity and re- uh, reverse the effects of that drift or address the effects of that drift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your field work. I mean, what do you do and how do you collect samples of bird sperm? <laughs> so, there's a question that's out of nowhere <laughs> for the listeners. Um, so yeah, I do, I do work on bird sperm and I look at what happens when you've got low genetic diversity and high inbreeding, what does that do to male fertility? So does yep. it affect uh, male sperm quality? And um, what I do is I go to offshore islands, I work with South Island robins, I work with the hee-hee or stitch bird mm-hmm. and uh, we go and collect semen samples. So what you do with male birds, male birds don't tend to have a penis, they have an opening called a cloaca, same as the female. Fun mm-hmm. fact, cloaca, Roman god of the sewers great job uh, oh wow yeah, i know there's one for your pub quiz um, <laughs> so yeah uh, so they have the cloaca and it's an opening for waste and for reproduction yeah it's cloaca. there we go Sewer. and so yeah so when uh when it's the mating season for the male uh the area around the cloaca swells up because it's full of semen and we can just use a technique called cloacal massage where we just do a very gentle squeeze side to side and back to front but of semen pulls on the surface of the cloaca we pull that off with a, a capillary tube and pop it straight under the microscope so that we can measure swimming speed of the sperm in the field you yeah. have to do that right there and then mm-hmm. otherwise the sperm are going to die and they don't swim very well when they're yeah so. yeah and so you do this for what reason to introduce these birds into areas where 
there is low reproduction rates? So first, the, the main reason we're doing it is just to understand whether inbreeding is a problem for male fertility in birds because okay. we know from a bunch of studies that inbreeding causes low male fertility in mammals, in insects, in plants, but nobody's ever really looked at it in birds. And there are some reasons around the genetics of birds why it may not be so much of a problem, but it also might okay. be. So it's really important for us to understand that. There's really high incidence of hatching failure in New Zealand birds in general, but we're never sure whether that hatching failure is to do with poor male fertility or to do with developmental problems in the egg. So addressing the initial problem of, are we seeing um, our New Zealand male birds, are they firing blanks because of inbreeding? Yeah. Addressing that question first helps us understand what's going on with general hatching success in, in New Zealand species. Okay, so are you doing things with the female birds as well in terms of the eggs? We're not, but I know there is another team, particularly for Hihi, uh, one of my colleagues in the UK has just advertised for a PhD student to do exactly that. And that will be oh, really nice because the then UK we can... is interested in our Hihi. Yes. Yes, they absolutely are. The University of Sheffield and the Zoological Society of London have a really long history. Well, you're history obviously of, from the UK. So I so. am, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they've got a really long history of working with HeHe. He. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the leaders of the HeHe he Recovery Group is based at ZSL in London. And so, yeah, they want to do the other side of the story, which mm -hmm. would be really, really nice because we can use my data on the, the sperm stuff and their yeah. data on the eggs and, and build a much more complete picture of what's happening in that species. Why the HeHe? So the hee hee is a really interesting bird uh, with a, a history of population crashes and bottlenecks and translocations. So mm. hee hee used to be all over the North Island. They were only ever on the North Island, never the South Island. Yeah. And uh, same, same old, same old for New Zealand birds. People arrived, they bought introduced mammals, habitat destruction, that kind of thing. And they went from being all over the North Island to just being in one population on Hauturu, Little Barrier Island. Um, and so yeah, by the 1800s, they were just there. Now, as a result of conservation action, people have taken, uh, the Hihi Recovery Group has taken birds from Haturu and founded new populations in places like Tiritiri Matangi, Bushy Park in Whanganui, uh, Zealandia Sanctuary in Wellington, Mount Mangotautri, and um, each of those populations is founded with a relatively small number of birds. Mm -hmm. So each time you do that, each time you have a translocation, you're creating one of these population bottlenecks that reduces genetic diversity. Yeah. And so you've got this history in this species of a big population crash that took them down to Hauturu, and then several little bottlenecks that have happened after that when you've done translocations. So in terms of looking at genetic diversity and inbreeding, these are a really, really interesting species for that because they've mm. got this history and we know what the history is. Are they flourishing in the areas where you've released? The population is growing, yes, certainly. Yeah. The interesting thing about hihi is we don't actually know how many there are. Yeah. Um, there's never been a full population survey small. on Hauturu. They're, they're small, they're hard to find, they're mm. cool little birds um, but they can, be, they can be quite difficult to detect. Uh, so Hauturu is a difficult site to work on and a full proper census of that site has never been done and that's the main population so we know how many birds roughly are in each of the translocated populations but our main stronghold population we don't know how many birds are there yeah. and that to me is like quite an important question yeah. <laughs> to find out how many there are so oh. the estimates usually get banded around is one to three thousand yeah. but it is an estimate that's uh, and that's quite a big, <laughs> big confidence interval yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, how long has genetics within conservation been taken seriously has it, have you had a problem in the past with so as it Conservation genetics as a discipline has really existed since kind of the 1980s as a guy called Michael Soule um, who sort of formalized it as a mm -hmm. discipline. Um, and it, it, it is difficult sometimes to get it taken seriously or, or even to get it prioritized because there's so many things vying for attention in conservation yeah. and there's so little funding available that and there's so many things we have to think about and I'm not sitting here saying genetics is the one thing you should look at to conserve a threatened species. It's just one part of a much bigger picture. Yeah. 
um, and fitting all of those things in to the budget and time of an overstressed, overstretched conservation manager is a really, really difficult thing to do. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why it's important to keep having these conversations and for, for scientists like myself to keep talking to the people who are doing the management on the ground and being like, well, what do you need? What questions do you have? Do you need genetics in your situation? Or can we sort of like, are there other things that are a, a higher priority? Mm. And then New Zealand, certainly traditionally, because of the problem with introduced mammals, that's always been the priority because that's the big, like, if we don't sort we that out, they're all dead anyway. And then yeah. genetics is irrelevant because they're gone. Yeah. Um, but I think what we've had a history of is, is dealing with that problem, but then we've not been able to have the long-term thinking about well what happens after that yeah i mean can they survive on their own yeah because can we have a self-sustaining population what mm. role does genetics play in that what role does habitat play in that and you know we've now reached a really interesting place in conservation in new zealand where we have managed to save a few things that, that were going to go extinct and we've got them on these offshore islands or in you know fence sanctuaries but to grow those populations we really need mainland big mainland populations that's what we need and that's that's the next big challenge i think for conservation in new zealand is how do we clear large areas of the mainland yeah. of introduced predators and bring back suitable habitat for those species what are you seeing out there on the field on the ground because i've got a few friends that are trappers and they're telling me things and it's pretty in terms of um, mammals, mm -hmm. it's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah, and I think it is easy to feel like you're fighting a losing battle, right? Because yeah. you, you do a bunch of trapping and then from the surrounding areas that you're just creating like a sink for the yeah. animals to feed back into. So you need not just one line of trapping, you need many, many, many lines of trapping so that your area is clear. Um, we, we know that it works. We know that in areas, like if you go to the root burn, for example, and go um, walking on either side of the root burn track now, both sides are trapped. Mm -hmm. um, I've been walking that track for a few years and just seeing the um, increases in the number of things like riflemen, yep. you see the odd mohur and stuff like that now, um, it's, it's really quite incredible. Mm -hmm. um, so it does work, but it's a really intensive effort. And what we need are solutions that don't require us to constantly be doing it, right? So, you know, yep. 1080 drops, it, it works, but you have to keep doing it because the animals come back. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with trapping. So we need, we need more permanent solutions, really. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure if I was going to ask you about 1080. <laughs> Want to get into that? <laughs> <laughs> we can. I'm for it and I'm probably going to get in trouble saying it. Uh, from, from some people. I love the Banty Natty page. It's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, brilliant. So um, can you just give, give us a quick little rundown of what um, what you'll be um, talking about tonight? I mean, I guess it's everything we've kind of talked about. Yeah, now. so tonight on Brello is basically what I'm talking about is uh, why conservation is, um, why genetics is important for conservation. I'll be using examples from my work with Little Spotted Kiwi, which is the second nice. rarest kiwi in New Zealand yeah. and also the cutest. So if you want to see lots of pictures mm. of that, then mm -hmm. come along for that. I'll also be talking about um, the bird sperm work that we do and the, the mobile sperm lab that I take to, to different islands to do that work. And I'm going to have a little hands-on demo with some props um, explaining oh, nice. conservation genetics, puppets. genetic drift. There's puppets. no puppets, uh. but I do have plastic balls with birds on them. Yeah, so <laughs> if people want to come and see that, then we'll have that too. And just, just really informal, people can ask questions, have yeah. a beer and... Yeah, we'll talk about those kind of things. Nice. Isn't it lucky we've got Kiwi? Because one, they're pretty cool. And uh, two, they're very good at being a pro poster bird. They are, yeah. They're, yeah. they're good, good poster birds. Yeah, you because know, they look cute and different. And you're like, oh, I want that to live forever. Yeah. Because if you just had, you know, just an ordinary looking bird, you'd be like, oh, what, what you call an ordinary looking bird? Just another bird. What, what other birds? All birds are special to me, James. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, I, <laughs> I understand. Well, I don't know, one of those dirty introduced ones. Um, oh, yes, yeah, like yeah. a blackbird or yeah. a dunnock or Boring. something. Boring, like very, yeah, very weird. Yeah, don't want that. Exactly. No, um, no, you're hee-hee, I don't know if 
Oh, they look here, here, beautiful. Yeah, they are. They're they beautiful. Are. I did. I did a look. I, I, you know, I did put my ten bucks in in, in the ringer. I didn't win. Uh, <laughs> you don't know that yet. We've not announced. Oh, okay. I thought maybe I'd know. <laughs> um, all right. Hey, thank you so much for coming in. Umbrellas tonight from uh, five thirty to six thirty. Perfect right. time for uh, a beer and some fries. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or uh, polenta chips. They do really good polenta oh, chips really? there. Yeah. It's oh, oh. a bit exotic for me. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Helen Taylor, thank you so much for coming in this morning. Thank you, Jamie. All right. It-